0: Welcome to 2.5 PLC. I'm Michael Ralph, and I was at a recruitment event all night
1: last night. And I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and my basement flooded this week. <laughs> oh my gosh. It did. My basement flooded this week. Uh, and that makes me uh, means I'm flooded with cortisol, and uh, I, it's having a hard time retrieving information. Uh, my hippocampus has been working extra hard. We've done First better one. opens before, uh, and I just want the gist is that uh, professional discussions sh- should not be limited to work, so we're doing it here, too.
0: Yeah. You can drink with us. We're going to tell you about the beers we drink, and hopefully you'll try them also.
1: And we're going to tell you about some research we read and how it might influence our classrooms. Ready, go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's what's happening. Okay. This is
0: like the third or fourth take that we did of trying to open this, uh, this show, and we're, we're struggling. Which is great. Hopefully it's well.
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, What are we drinking? uh, We're drinking Dark Truth Stout from the Boulevard Brewing Company, and it is an Imperial Stout, and I really need that right now.
0: Standardized test scores have a disproportionate impact on decision-making processes. From administrators, from teachers, from parents, from stakeholders, from funders and philanthropists, uh, across the board. Standardized tests have a disproportionate impact on decisions being made
1: about the classroom. Uh, To clarify this for me, a proportion involves two metrics. So it's disproportional to what? The most common decisions that get made regarding
0: policy for schools um, get made on the basis of one of like three factors, athletics, activities, and academics. If you're picking a category to judge a school based on your students or your priorities, it's one of those three things. Uh, for athletics, you can look at win-loss rates for the, for, the, for the activities, or you can look at like recruitment rates, uh, rates of going pro, um, recruitment to D1, D2 level, just recruitment stats. For activities, very similar win loss rates for quiz bowl, win loss rates for debate teams, uh, and uh, resource availability is prob- is I perceive to be very important. You know, is the theater well equipped? Do you have do you have uh, high tech lighting and sound systems and all of those sorts of things? So the resources available uh, in your programs, but for academics, we have advancement numbers. We have college scholarship metrics. We have graduation rates. We have those sorts of things. But the win-loss record, the direct comparative number, doesn't exist for academics. And so we have this black box problem of how do we know what they actually know rot large? You and I have some ways to get at that with our individual students, but it doesn't scale. So how do we know whether or not A beats B in regard to what they know, and usually what fills that spot is standardized test numbers, because numbers are higher or lower. Numbers are um, very clear and concise, and they don't have a lot of complexity presented in them. There's lots of complexity in how they're generated, but that can be ignored and often is ignored. So when you're comparing win-loss rates and recruiter numbers, you're balancing like, yeah, they beat everybody, but they don't play anybody particularly challenging, and so we don't have many um, pros in training over here. Uh, So in academics, I would propose standardized tests are considered far more dramatically compared to the other metrics for success, like graduation rates, like uh, higher rates, like scholarship numbers, like all the other metrics for advancement. Or, or other stuff. I don't know. Like we talked about in our grading episode, 003, uh, there are lots of other ways to get at what students know and can do, and those are not prioritized relative to standardized tests.
1: Recently read some research that suggests the more partitioned your mind, the more you like simple solutions, regardless of whether or not they solve the problem. and. Though uh, And teaching is a job that actually requires people to to partition their minds quite a bit. You've got to save a lot of automatic energy to make sure you're scanning the room for those students to make sure they're not getting themselves in trouble or hurting others or uh, any number of behaviors or activities, because we are. In addition to wanting to build their and promote their cognitive development, we also are responsible for their safety, so we are are always on in that room. And uh, so when you're in that mode and you're thinking, well, how are we going to do this? Let's do a standardized test. It gives you two comparable numbers. That'll do. So this, I, this discussion begs the question is how, how, how valid are they as measurements of success? So now we kind of have to ask, how are, what are they measuring? Are they measuring this, the success and growth and uh, competency of individual students or do you look at them holistically and uh, use them as measurements for success and growth and efficacy of particular teachers? Or do you use them as measurements of success or growth and efficacy of particular institutions? Uh, standardized tests are used in all of those ways. And is that appropriate that it is used to, for individual students, for teachers and classrooms, and for whole buildings? We can come at that question as scientists,
0: uh, natural scientists and social scientists, because scientists, you can use a tool for lots of different things, and i got no problem with that. But if you're using it as a measurement, we measure length, or we measure mass, or we measure speed. Um, but confounding it with lots of other things makes it a bad measurement. So I'm going to argue specifically, and that's some of what the, our, uh, our discussion article gets to in... Uh, In this NPR article is that's some of what we don't know about AP tests is they're trying to be a a good measurement of what a student knows uh, relative to uh, a college equivalency or a university equivalency uh, at a university. But if that's true, they can't also be a comparative tool. We can't both be measuring uh, gross knowledge relative to some unmoving standard in addition to a competitive standard. I don't think you can do them both well. So It can be a measurement, or it can be lots of other things. But if it's going to be a measurement, that's all it needs to be. And I think they do it, uh, when I say they, I think the AP test is one of the best examples of measuring what a student knows. And I think some of our other standardized tests, um, I think that is commonly the greatest problem with them, is that they don't measure well out of deference to all the other purposes they're supposed to have.
1: If we accept that the AP test is a good indicator of what student knows, then uh, then we have to approach those that that metric with some reverence and power. What decisions do students make based on the AP test? What decisions do and should teachers make based on the AP test, and what decisions do and should administrators make based on the AP test?
0: Yeah, and that's what the article addresses uh, for a considerable amount of its bulk. It it brings up four issues, but it asks, we don't really know how administrators are responding on a large scale, on a state scale or on a national scale. We don't really know how uh, administrators, both building and district, are allocating resources. But I'm going to make a bold claim and say that AP courses are getting a disproportionate amount of resources relative to other students and other courses. They've got more expensive materials. They are commonly the um, more qualified than the median teacher at large. So we've got uh, particularly highly trained teachers and a lot of resources as materials for the classroom, more resources for, for professional development. We, I would argue, that we are allocating greater resources to AP programs. How much more I don't know, and how that decision gets made I don't know. You assert
1: that we're investing more resources into. AP programs. That's interesting considering what we do know about uh, the AP data over the decade between 2000 and 2010. If we're investing many resources into this smaller group of students, we would like to see returns on those. And that is not really what we are seeing uh, when we aggregate the data from that particular decade. Uh, The NPR article linked to a, a second article called uh, the advanced placement programs impact on academic Achieve- achievement uh, published in 2015 uh, the take home conclusions were that despite increasing resources in those programs only math improved both performance uh, and enrollment now there were all all tests increased enrollment but only math improved its per- performance uh, relevant to those increases in enrollment. So math is doing it right. Is that
0: what we conclude? Uh, or stood to benefit in a way that the other, that the other subjects didn't stand to benefit for whatever reason, and I don't know the, I don't know which of those two it is.
1: If we are not seeing performance imp- improvements as a consequence of increasing resources, to promote participation, we get to the problem, uh, which was kind of jokingly uh, presented in a prior non sequitur in this course. Would you dump your resources into promoting Nobel laureates, or do you target the widest group of students for improvement? And though at the time I was in the position to make the argument for the Nobel laureate concentration... I'm not entirely sure that that's appropriate if our findings say that when we do that we do not get gains at least within this context right which again I'm arguing is one of
0: the best case scenarios regarding a validated assessment um, that appropriately addresses well-defined learning objectives which is one of the greatest challenges that we've got when we try to when we try to go even broader uh, to some of the state and nationally mandated assessments because too often, if we are trying to measure what a student knows, that means we have to agree on what a student knows to begin with. And the AP program has some benefit because they have the absolute authority. We have made this program. We get to say these are the learning objectives. And while we don't really know, and the article addresses, that's the top question, if we don't really know which colleges are taking these, these uh, AP scores for credit and what credit's being awarded, which just seems absolutely bizarre to me because nobody's keeping it a secret, so how is there not some centralized source of information for what's being accepted where? That fluid sort of ad hoc nature for how credit is being honored, I think, is an embarrassment. I think it's completely inappropriate and should be addressed. But again, that's the best case scenario. So any other assessment, like a national general biology assessment, that's, I don't, I don't know where we're at in having one of those deployed. Do you, do you know where we're at on that? Mm-hmm. I don't, it, it, it hasn't been true recently. We've got to agree on what biology is. And the fluid nature of standards and agreement on assessments, plus just the raw resources, uh, the AP tests are expensive, but that's because we're doing item development, we're doing validity testing, we're doing field testing, and those things are not happening in some of the, more, the higher stakes standardized tests that are being given to determine school funding, to be determining uh, teacher job allocation. Uh, those things are not happening. And so if we're measuring something poorly, then we stand to be at an even greater disadvantage if we're making resource allocation decisions based on the information coming out of
1: that. Disinformation or low-quality information is worse than no information because it gives you a false sense of comfort that the decision that you're making is well-founded. Whereas if you had no information, you would understand that you are stumbling through the dark as you go forward. Why does it
0: matter? So we've got some bad information and we're doing our best. What, what is the harm from trying to make choices based on bad numbers even if they're somewhat worse than having no information? What's the harm in trying to make a decision from a number? Who does it hurt? People who are making choices based on based on these numbers a, a major component of that is home buyers and parents making choices about where they're going to live and where they're going to send their students to school based on beliefs about these numbers. There's uh, yet another study. This one's in a a sociology paper, uh, as I recall, from the American Sociological Review, uh, published last year, called Inequality in Children's Contexts." And this one did a review of the impact of uh, school choice and school composition on uh, segregation measures. This study found that increases... And inequality based on income are dramatically increasing for families with children in a way that it is not increasing in families who do not have children." The upshot, the upshot of this research, and it's, it's not just this one, but there's, uh, there's some more citations that come out of a, a good introductory article is The Urban School Stigma in the Atlantic. Uh, it cites this, uh, this paper and it cites several others. It's got a lot of really good primary citations. In that Atlantic article which is why it's such a good starting point but the upshot is that parents will make choices to send their students to private schools to charter schools or even make home buying purchases predicated on the test scores of school districts that they're considering buying a house Uh, and so that leads to greater SES stratification because families with resources to live in more expensive areas will go there in response to test scores whereas some families don't have the resources to make those choices and will go where there are lower test scores, even though those test scores are bad indicators of achievement for students and where they're going. It's something like 60% of the variance is explained by SES status and like 10% is explained by teacher efficacy and teacher variance. So it has very little to do with the quality of the school and has way more to do with the stratification that's happening in response to a bad indicator. And what's worse, it's bad for everyone. Because again, another study cited in this article uh, measured that even white students who make the choice to go to predominantly white schools at the expense of going to a more diverse or inclusive school have reduced achievements because they have exposure to fewer perspectives among their classmates. Even the ones who are stratifying are worse served, completely ignoring all the resource allocation decisions that are being made at the lower SES school that's happening just because it was a lower SES school. It's worse for everyone.
1: My family relocated uh, due to my dad's employment uh, during my ninth grade year. And while we were scouting houses to buy in the new location, we were being told uh, by realtors that we really needed to look at this one particular region because of the test scores of the school at that region. And uh, my father and I uh, were kind of scouting, and we did not just uh, take that at face value. What we actually did is uh, we scheduled lots of visits with lots of schools to get a tour of the schools. And of course, we would be... Uh, hooked up with a liaison who would talk about all of the great things that are happening at that school. And we heard that spiel in different places, and they all had lots of things to say. But at the end of the day, that is not how we made our decision. We asked the kids roaming the hallways how they felt about their school. And uh, it was actually in a lower middle class Uh, school where we consistently got a sense of inclusion and participation and enjoyment from those students. And uh, when we talked to the students at the schools that we had been sent targeted to, we got a lot of students that were dissatisfied with their experience. So uh, we ended up going to the uh, uh, middle SES uh, neighborhood, and we went to that school, and I loved my high school experience. So that is just a personal anecdote. I don't know what it means here, but it that school uh, definitely offered a higher degree of uh, ethnic and SES diversity than the schools that we had been targeted for.
0: I really like that story. I didn't know that about you. Man, that's interesting. Uh, my story is like it's pretty opposite. It's pretty opposed to that. Um, I I went to public school forever. All of my school has been public school. But uh, my primary, like my my primary family, my immediate family, uh, was was intensely considering private school for my one of my siblings, uh, and didn't end up going that way, but was certainly considering it. Uh, I have extended family who had did make that choice to do private school, uh, and what's tough about this is the conversation get always comes back around to what about my kid? And you've got this really difficult tension of even if somebody accepts that private schooling contributes to some of these problems, if there's a belief that it's going to be a benefit for my kid, for me, if there's a belief that there will be a benefit, it's really hard to talk most parents out of providing an advantage or a head start or a benefit for their kid, even if they accept your argument. Which is, I think, what gets us back to the danger of these numbers, is if we've got bad numbers conferring a mistaken belief that this is where good is and this is where bad is, then parents are going to make worse decisions. And putting them in a position where they have to try and balance that tension is irresponsible on the part of the people who are trained and knowledgeable on that metric. Now we do other stuff.
1: On to content.
0: So we've done all sorts of subjects, but there are a great many subjects. So we're going to do another one we haven't talked about before.
1: I'm really excited about this foreign language study. I didn't actually get to read all the way through it, so I just I just read the uh, sort of the literature review and production section, and it was really compelling to me and interesting to me. And uh, I know that you, uh, I assume you read more of it. Maybe you can tell me how it ends. Uh, comparing student-selected and teacher-assigned pairs on collaborative collaborative writing is uh, uh, published uh, in 2016 in the Journal of Language Teaching Research uh, by Mozafari and. In it, they discussed, sort of in the introductory section, a review of the literature about student-selected groups versus teacher-assigned groups. And there was so much dissonance
0: in that introductory section. Like, did, did it read the same way to you that it read to me of, like, none of this seems to fit together?
1: Uh, there were some things that surprised me, and there were some things that really fit with me, and, uh, it- it was revelatory, and it was also some of it was predictable. It was it was a strange read indeed, but I really did enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I really did. Yeah, so did some of the broad strokes was that um, clearly there is value in students working together. Mm-hmm. That was accepted, mm-hmm. so that groups versus individual was not really a question. We should put them in groups. So Vygotsky, you got the win on that one. Let's move on. Uh, the second. That there were some different um, values regarding whether they were working in groups or working or self-selected groups or teacher-assigned groups. So- well, and,
0: and and what came out here and is something that I bring up just as academic due diligence often is there seem to be some meaningful disagreements between perceptions of progress and ability and actual progress and ability. That was, there were real differences here between survey results and actual outcome
1: results. Students in self-selected groups feel like there is a greater degree of prep participation, a greater degree of work sharing, a greater degree of support within the group, and a greater degree of work quality than in teacher-assigned groups. That's how the students feel about self-selected groups. Yes.
0: Reproduced across multiple studies. That is a well-established pattern. The problem is when we start to look at their actual gains in competency, uh, we we have fewer measures. So a great many of the existing background citations are associated with surveys, and many fewer of them make uh, quantitative measurements of their progress, which was something that this study attempted to do to some degree. They were they were they were modestly successful. There's things I want to change, but they
1: were better. What they measured is that. Despite how students feel, off-task behaviors increased in self-selected groups, which significantly decreases learning and productivity for their objectives.
0: Maybe. Because we saw that in student-selected groups, grades are higher. So how do we reconcile considerable, reproducible instances of off-task behaviors, but higher grades?
1: We could write narratives to apologize for those findings, perhaps in a group where everyone is friends, people are more comfortable just having the person who knows the most do the most work and is more comfortable attributing that quality to the group at large. Or even, getting back to our discussion of bad data is worse than no
0: data at all, that using grades as a measurement is bad in general because grades have lots of other implications, which is why, as a research practice, we should not be reporting grades in research in K. Like, we should not be reporting grades.
1: Now, what was interesting to me is that in post-project surveys, students of self-selected groups tended to report that good friends don't always make good group members and that off-task talking reduced work quality. Yeah,
0: satisfaction goes down... In student-selected groups, pre-post-test. Even though they would choose them almost every time. Uh Uh-huh. So we have a lot of conflicting patterns that are going on here. And I think they're (laughs) explainable. I think that we can get to them. But they are really complex interactions between perceptions and outcomes. So what this study measured was they actually recorded group progress. Like, put it on tape. And they scored it. And then they looked at the products that were produced, but they looked at it not from a standpoint of grades. They just measured their their products.
1: They focused on the interactions between students because this paper did something that I thought was very insightful. And that the quality of student growth and experience really isn't about the group members and whether they're self-selected or teacher assigned or whatnot. The quality of the cognitive experience is based on the interactions that the students have between each other. So let's forget grades, let's forget all of this stuff, and let's look at those interactions.
0: Especially from a foreign language standpoint, that's particularly important because those interactions are how we get better at language. So if I'm a foreign language learner, if I'm learning English or any other language, I have to have interactions. I have to generate language. I have to comprehend the language of others to get better at. It. There's just no other way to do it.
1: Now uh, they used an abbreviation that I thought they that I thought was really uh, clever, but I entirely forgot what it stood for. LREs. Do you remember what that stands yeah. for and what it means? Language related episodes. So uh, I interpreted
0: that to be exchanges of dialogue or discussion. That was how I internalized that.
1: Though I didn't remember the. Um, Though I did not remember the acronym, what I did remember is the description, which was when an individual stops in the dialogue to consider and digest their linguistic choices, so there's a pause in the dialogue, then it results in a choice exchange. That was what the LRE in my read meant. Mm-hmm. That, okay, we're ha- we're, we've got some fluency. I say this, you say that. I say this, you say that. I start to say something. Pause. Consider.
0: Processing time,
1: and then I make a choice. If they once so they measured how often that happened because those pauses are indicating, we assume, based you know, if we assume behavior is an indicator of thoughts. Yeah, it's an indirect measurement. But we're assuming that that behavior indicates that they are stopping to think about things. They also ind- indicated whether the choice they made subsequent to that pause was an accurate, correct use of language or an incorrect use of language. So they have gotten as close as I've seen in
0: quite some time in measuring desirable difficulty.
1: It, it was pretty great.
0: How did it end? Because uh, I honestly, I stopped caring how this particular study ended because I got so caught up in the complex interactions between measurements. Um, but I, it ended the way we would expect it to end, I think, because teacher assigned groups notably outperformed the student-selected pairs on measures of fluency and accuracy. Teacher-assigned groups had greater gains as measured by
1: their competencies. I noted in the introduction that teacher-assigned groups basically have two categories, either random or based on ability and usually aiming for heterogeneity. So, high with mid, high with low, mid with low types of groupings. And I'll throw in for you,
0: there is some gulf research that's now fairly dated that gives us indications of which combinations are superior. Intermediate and low have the greatest gains.
1: Now, uh, in, in, my, um, in, in my read of the introduction, uh, I found something out that was uh, a little different than that standard for foreign language or second language studies. Uh, they mentioned in the introduction that um, high and high is actually pretty great when it comes to LREs. Two individuals that are both high, the number of LREs that they have kind of uh, has this, um, a greater gain than, than the other mixed groups. However, mid-mid uh, loses to mixed groups, and low-low is terrible yeah. because the low-low groups, uh, though they have increased numbers of LREs, they resolve them incorrectly.
0: I'm literally dancing in my chair because I'm so excited about this. So high highs stretch each other's boundaries on their schemas. And intermediate and lows, intermediates can check and correct the lows while intermediates get reinforcement of the connections in their own schema. So group
1: making matters and we have a pretty good indication of how to do it. Mid with low and high with high. Every student has a place. God, it feels good. <laughs> yes. Now, is it bold of us to assume that this pattern extends beyond foreign language? Because this was tightly, tightly packaged within the realm of foreign language.
0: Yes, it's bold to make any claim without a research support. So, just yes is the answer to your question. It is bold. Um, we can postulate. We can conjecture. But somebody needs. Uh, Oh yeah, our human brains are really good at post-hoc explanations of things, Uh, but we need the research to support it. But what I think is important here is there is this temptation to allow student selection of groups as a placation, as some uh, shortcut to dopamine through a reward system, and that there appears to be a greater engagement. So those grades, uh, grade improvements with student-selected groups really tightly paired with increased completion rates. So what it looks like is there's a greater buy-in in in a group identity when there's a pre-existing group identity. We are friends. This group already exists. And so somebody will be more inclined to do whatever is necessary to check
1: the boxes. But it doesn't lead to more productive struggle. We're in this together, and I don't want you to dislike me. So what do we need to do to get through this? So instead, we've got to find a way as teachers
0: to promote productive group formation. What has to happen is we can create these groups of appropriate ability mixtures and appropriate familiarity mixtures, but then we've got to find a way to get them to productively get started and feel good about their new group identity because they don't have those pre-existing
1: social structures upon which they can fall back. Another thing to note is that this, uh, this research uh, was focusing on pair groupings, two people. Uh, when you have larger groups, you start introducing other factors that are not played out in this, uh, such a stereotype threat, prior experiences, and other... Uh, Any microaggression yeah, stuff that might be on. Right, wrong. interpersonal relationships. And then we also have to deal with the fact that the social interactions of a high school or a leaving breathing ecosystem and though all of the indicators if we were masters of this pairing system and we knew all the demographic indicators and we could artistically place students together that doesn't mean those students didn't punch each other in the face two weeks ago so it's still complicated even if there are answers it's complicated a heuristic like mid low and high oversimplifies something that's more complex so it's a good place to start from, but if that's as far as you ever go, you are doing it wrong. Yeah.
0: And now for something completely different. Non sequitur about things that do not follow. We're going to talk about nonsense, and we've actually taken some feedback. So I mentioned just a moment ago that some people have given us some of their thoughts and we've had some conversations. So the non sequitur, we're going to work to make it better because... That's a thing that we do. So imagine, Mr. Woodruff, that you are the superintendent of a school district and that you must choose between having all books in your district written in only Klingon or all books are composed of more than 50% misinformation. They are wrong over half the time. You must choose one of those two things for your district.
1: What disambiguation can I offer? This one is pretty clean cut. These are two terrible choices, and I understand both of them.
0: Students becoming bilingual early in their development is valuable. Being able to experience an unusual language, even Klingon, even though there are plenty of schools that learn Latin, even though Latin is a dead language... So being able to learn Klingon is going to develop their Broca's area and going to expand that particular domain of their brain So that they are better able to become bilingual uh, Trilingual and quadlingual as they become older and even though that initial language is not going to become useful If we're deploying that particular language from a very young age One of those prime windows when students are most able to learn second and third languages uh, We're gonna set them up for being able to learn more productive languages in the future not to mention Becoming Star Trek
1: fans is correct and appropriate. Well, before I get to the meat of my argument, I would like to point out that Klingon is not Latin. Latin has a far greater uh, value as a, quote, dead language compared to a fantasy realm Klingon language because so many languages have their roots and uh, etymologies based in Latin. Um... Having an understanding of those components allows students to be able to interpret words that they have never seen before because they are under understanding of the different types. Whereas Klingon does not, Klingon does not have that future applicability. So uh, the initial uh, equation of the two is just false. Two, that Star Trek is a value is a cultural judgment, and it implies that there aren't other cultural artifacts that uh, are more worthy of uh, investment as a school. And I would argue that though there is cultural value to Star Trek, there are many narratives uh, that might have a greater uh, unifying factor uh, than just Star Trek. So, for instance, if we're looking for a unifying cultural example uh, in New Zealand, many high schools have their students participate in Maori hakas, which are war chants that unify the school and give them a cultural value that is based in uh, history and multiculturalism, and uh, they can identify with as something that they that is unique and proud for them. Whereas uh, that that has a greater historical value than. A uh, entertainment construct, but those are asides. Let's get to the real meat of my argument, and that is that teachers are the masters of their classrooms. And I don't read 100% of any book in my classroom. I don't assign 100% of any reading in my classroom. That I, I I will admit. That I am arguing from a position that the teacher is in command of the curriculum in their school. Would you grant me that concession? Granted. So if the teacher is in command of the curricular uh, choices of their classroom, then I am responsible for knowing my content. And that comes from experience. That comes from edit, revising, improving my ideas. It does not come from reading a textbook from cover to cover. Books are resources, as is the internet, as is uh, the librarian, as is professionals that can be invited into your classroom. Professional journal articles, biographies, narrative historical documents. Historians, all of these people, all of these artifacts should be considered as primary sources for your classroom, regardless of what you are teaching. And there are books written today that contain more than 50% information. So the judgment that students have to determine what is a viable source can be practiced when you have. Something that they know is distrustworthy, which information in here can we trust and which can't we trust is going to be a critical skill in the future of the information age. So the tools aren't knowledge sources, but opportunities to practice knowledge verification. In fact, it should be done, not these are terrible choice, it's actually something we should do.
0: You've presented some additional weaponry to me in your initial description. Because many other viable cultural choices actually reinforces from your position there's no unifying decision being made. And so that's going to promote additional tribalism between classrooms and between buildings in your district because they will all be making disparate choices that are at odds with each other for what their priorities are from a cultural standpoint. So you're going to have a greater fragmentation of Um, different sects within your your district because you're freeing it up and they're making all those disparate choices. And beyond that, if we accept that we're criticizing every individual information source, which I agree is appropriate, we should read with a critical eye, especially as science teachers. Reading with a critical eye is a skill that we teach. But if I am reliably and consistently encountering that every single source of information is more wrong than right, I am going to learn with a reliable feedback structure that my uh, my information sources are wrong and to be distrusted. And so I'm going to learn at a, a malleable age that I cannot trust anything I'm reading Anywhere, Because the internet has rife mistakes in it also. All the other choices that I have are not as reliable as published, curated, and edited sources. So if I can learn that there are sources of information that are reliable, when I'm in that formative age, then I am going to be willing to accept that there's value in some of the most fringe and most inflammatory sources when I get to a point where I'm a citizen trying to make choices. Whereas even from a from a standpoint where I'm learning a language that may have reduced utility in other contexts, as you mentioned, all manner of resources can be found online. So I, I found a Klingon translator in in three seconds flat online. So I can translate Plenty of other sources into my familiar literature format so I can continue to develop my fluency in this language while developing the appropriate reliance on differential authority sources, which does not preclude me from learning the critical readership skills that we would seek to teach our students in any
1: context, this misinformation situation or otherwise. So I would be more comfortable giving them information that is. Mixed of mixed accuracy and then pulling a consensus of sources than engendering a this is true because I said so attitude. We
0: can present sources as being reliable, whereas in your case, you will never have an opportunity to prevent, present a printed source that is reliable. No,
1: I can print from not books. I can always print from... I could not use the textbooks given to me. Well, then you're ecologically irresponsible. Yes. I'm a superintendent. I don't have a lot of choices. I
0: don't want to kill the children of our future.
1: If we're pushing this to a concession, printing the books with 50% misinformation is an ecological irresponsibility, and as a biologist, I am willing to cede at that point.
0: I didn't like any of that. <laughs> this was more fun. I enjoyed this.
1: Uh, me too. How was the beer?
0: Uh, I am pretty pleased to be getting back to a stout.
1: Me too. They're my favorite. That's where I want to live. Um, before I met Dragon's Milk Stout, Dark Truth was my favorite, and it continues to maintain my second place in my... Mm. Uh, beverage echelon. It is malty and bitter and dark and I like it.
0: It's not that bitter. It's As as far as stouts go, it is one of the lighter stouts. Okay. There's there's a little bit of chewiness to it. It is certainly malty. I will give you that. I, I like the maltiness about it. Uh, I don't experience it to be that bitter. Oh, okay. I think that it's a pretty accessible stout. Um, I like that it's particularly local, especially now that I have Lawrence as being a a significant part of my life again. Uh, I also like it a whole bunch.
1: Is Boulevard in Lawrence? It's in Kansas City, man. I don't know. Well, it's still local. It's north. (laughs) It's other
0: local. Geography is, uh, an area in which I don't struggle productively
1: very often. (laughs) What do you think? You got anything else you want to say to the listeners? Hey, um... If you're someone who's, who's listening to this after hearing uh, our prior podcasts, thanks, because this was not part of our initial batch. You had to come back, check if there was a new one, and then decide to listen to it, and that is really meaningful. Uh, we are glad, I am glad, that you find value uh, in just thinking about the things we said, even if you have zero agreement with the things that we've said.
0: Yeah, we, we know this is a longer podcast. Uh, I, in particular, am acutely aware that 45 minutes is a considerable investment of your time and of your energy. There are plenty of other things you can be doing. Uh, but quality struggle is important, and I want to do that, and I'm happy that you want to do that also. Uh, if if there's more that we can be doing to make this a value to you and uh, to desirably challenge you, get in touch with us. We want this to be a PLC that's greater than two. We want that. So uh, thanks for listening. Give us some feedback on whatever format is comfortable for you, but thanks for coming back. Thanks for coming back.
1: Yeah, we have plans for the future to uh, make uh, your participation more accessible, though all things worth doing uh, are complicated and take time. So, if you can bear with us in the meantime, we are still thinking about ways to get you into the conversation. But
0: until then, discuss research.
1: And struggle well.